Hello, hello, and welcome to the Picket Fence Podcast. My name is Derek Early. And I'm Cam Smith. We are the hosts of the brand new Picket Fence Podcast, a basketball podcast with an Indiana focus. Each week we'll bring you discussions on current affairs in the basketball world from high school, college, the NBA, and beyond. Also, each week we will discuss and break down a topic related to basketball in the state of Indiana or expand to another hoops-related discussion. This week we're going to get warmed up in our shoot-around by discussing more new hires around the state of Indiana and the new rules in Indiana high school basketball. In our four-quarters segment, we will be discussing the conference finals results, previewing the NBA finals, and taking an in-depth look at the historic Boston-Miami matchup. And finally, we will wrap up our show with a continuation of our basketball movie rankings with a basketball movie characters draft. Cam and I will be drafting a starting five, consisting of strictly fictional basketball characters. After you listen to the episode, we would love to know some of your favorites. Post your favorite uh, movie basketball characters to our social media pages. Check out at Picket Fence Pod on Twitter and the Picket Fence Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. When we come back, we're going to get warmed up and into our pregame shoot-around. All right, welcome back. Uh, we're going to start off the episode today with our pregame shoot-around. Um, so a couple of topics that we want to discuss um, to get warmed up today. The first one is some very interesting changes um, in the coaching situation in the state of Indiana. We have several big jobs that are still open and a few changes um, that I find to be very interesting. So the first one, Derek, that I found um, to be a pretty big move is Sean Busick uh, named the new head coach at Greensburg. Uh, we discussed a couple weeks ago how big we thought the Greensburg job was. A very successful program, and they've been perennially one of the, the top programs uh, in the state. And for Sean Busick to, to come in there and, and get that job, and coming off of some, some great seasons where he's been previously, uh, I think that's a pretty interesting move, and I, I see Greensburg um, picking up where they left off with Coach Busick. Yeah, like you and I talked, Greensburg's not a job where you go in and have to rebuild the situation. Um, Coach Meyer did a phenomenal job during his tenure there at Greensburg. Um, like you said, building it into one of the preeminent programs in the state. And I think Coach Busick is in a, a great situation where he gets to come in and take over a program that's well-established. And like you said, he's been a successful head coach in his own right. Um, he has seven sectional titles, one regional title, one semi-state title. Um, went to the state championship game in 2004 coaching Belmont. Um, has been at Zionsville, been successful, and is coming off two years at Traders Point, including an 18-7 and seven year uh, last year in 2022-2023. So certainly would not look at, at Greensburg as this being a situation where they should see a drop-off. Um, they've got talent coming in every single year, and I think it's, a, it's not only a good hire for Greensburg, um, but it's a great move for Coach Busick. Absolutely. I think that... Um you know, with the resume that he brings in um, and where he's, you know, been around uh, the state for quite some time and, and been successful uh, everywhere he's been, I think the Greensburg, on paper, looks like they made the right move, and, and yeah. I'm excited to see what they do there. Uh, the job that I found to be interesting that's still open, and it was kind of a later opening, um, a little bit later in the spring that we heard about this, Bedford North Lawrence, um, from what I know, 
has not named a head coach yet. They don't have anything official uh, from what I've seen. Now, we that could be, you know, they could have somebody in the works over there. I'm not sure. But for that job to still be open, it's a pretty big job that's open there. Um, and there's three schools that I've looked at that I'm very excited to see who they're going to bring in. And that's Bedford North Lawrence, Lynn Stockton, and Connorsville. Those are three. I mean, Lynn Stockton uh, coming off of their season and obviously, you know, the way things ended coaching-wise for them uh, wasn't exactly ideal. But to have those three jobs open, they're teams that compete all the time for sectional titles that makes uh, state tournament runs. Those are three big names that are still open. I'm very curious to see who they're going to bring in, if there are big names that are still out there, um, or if there's going to be some some new people that they bring in, maybe that have been on the staff. Yeah, Bedford um, definitely is an interesting interesting job there that's open. Like you and I said, it was um, kind of a late spring addition to the coaching openings. Um, Coach Hine is coming off his tenure there, going back to the 2019-2020 uh, season. They've been 15 and 10. They've been 14 and 11, um, 11 and 12. Um, but going back to this season, you know they were 16 and 7, and took the eventual the eventual regional champion Jennings County team um, to two overtimes in sectional and and played them to within a point. Um, so it's not like um, Bedford by any means is down. Um, they've always got talent. Um, they're kind of at the mercy of playing in the Hoosier Hills Conference, obviously. Um, they by no means play an easy schedule, um, even outside of, of their conference. Uh, but it'll be a place that I'm sure will attract a, a pretty big name across the state um, to come in and take over that program. Yeah, Hoosier Hills is kind of an interesting conference right now because as well as BNL uh, bringing in someone, you have Floyd Central and New Albany. And now uh, Jennings County coming open, there are going to be several – uh, new coaches in Hoosier Hills. It's almost kind of uh, kind of revamping that that conference there. We've discussed um, New Albany and Floyd Central's hire, but to have BNL come open and now recently Jennings County coming off of a tremendous season. Yeah, Jennings County was just awesome. I mean, watching them. You know that we didn't scout them. We didn't have them uh, on our sed- our schedule at Court Central, but when we would um, you know be scouting teams that they had played, and they were just they were just a juggernaut. Like they just had. So many different guys out there who were threats. They were just such a fun team. They were very unselfish. I think that was kind of their mantra this year, that they were just very, very unselfish, really play as a unit team. Um, They were really fun, which kind of brings into the next person I want to bring up with all these jobs being open is Coach Josh Land, who um, is leaving Jennings County. Um, And so just now talking about how successful the season they had, the way they just looked so well coached, I'm curious to see where uh, Josh Land is headed, especially when you have BNL, Linton, Stockton, and Connorsville, some of those big names open there. Does he make a jump in the Hoosier Hills Conference, or does he go to one of those other schools? I'm not sure. But um, wherever he's headed, I was very impressed uh, with his team. And I think that uh, he might be the next big name to get one of those bigger jobs. Yeah, he goes back to taking over Jennings County in 2016 and 2017. Uh, they went 13-11 and 11 in his first year. Um, had some down years, you know, I think Jennings County is not a whole lot different than some of the schools maybe in the Mid-Southern Conference where you see those ebbs and flows of years where you see some talent come through all at once. You have a couple of down years, uh, but certainly has built the program into what they were this year going 24-3, and three, uh, not only winning sectional, but winning a regional championship and then only losing by four um, to Brownsburg in the semi-state. So I'm kind of yeah. with you on that train of thought. You know, I'm, I'm interested to see 
um, what job he ends up taking. You know, I think whoever it is is going to get somebody that obviously will work and knows how to build a program. So that's going to be an interesting thing to keep track of here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm very excited to see where he goes. And you and I were kind of talking about this just in our own conversations. Um, definitely one of those uh, got out at the right time. I'm not saying Jennings County's down. What I mean is like his stock right, could be right. higher at this point. I mean, he is right now somebody that I, I'm curious if there are some schools around who maybe are kicking themselves. Maybe they should have waited a little bit longer. No kidding. Um, uh, I think there are some schools that definitely can be like, man, we could have grabbed a guy like this and, and brought him in. Um, and not to say that these aren't there aren't great coaches being hired everywhere, but Josh Land is, is impressive, and what he built there, um, and the way that they they've grown at Jennings County with him being there. I mean, there was some, like you said early on, kind of mediocre. But again, this is the Hoosier Hills Conference where he's competing against some really tough. I mean, those first couple years at Jennings County where he has losing seasons, he's going up against the the Floyd Central teams who were winning twenty games a year. And Romeo Langford. I mean, he started out in a pretty tough era in Hoosier Hills. And once Romeo left and Floyd Central wasn't doing what they were doing, um, he all of a sudden started to win some games. So you can definitely see where his competition was, was pretty pretty steep. But I'm curious to see where, where Coach Land ends up, and I'm very curious to see where these kind of big three names with BNL and Stockton and Connersville, who they fill in there, and to see um, who Jennings County might bring in. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. You got to wonder, you know, do they go with somebody more established, or um, I would say, given the success they had this year, you almost have to go with somebody that's familiar with success and carrying a program because you don't want to have to start over um, after the type of year that they had. You know, going to semi-state for the first time, I think, in program history. Don't quote me on that. Uh, I know they hadn't won a sectional since two thousand five. Uh, so you've got to think that they want to have somebody that can come in and kind of just keep that ship going in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. I know there are some Jennings County basketball um, teams um, from years and years ago that are pretty, like, heralded. Uh, so as I'm looking this up, because I remember it, uh, reading about this, in the 1971-1972 season, which is really, really far back, Jennings County uh, was – kind of a powerhouse in terms of scoring um, they had a very interesting style back then that resembles a lot of the basketball we see today very spaced a lot of transition um, where they were averaging um, under coach Don Schroeder 93 points a game so I think that that was at one point their real you know kind of claim to fame but since then hadn't been one of the you know more top programs but uh, they definitely had a had a lot of uh, a lot of the, the same style of that this year for sure. They resembled those those teams of of uh, Jennings County uh, history there. Yeah. Um, to continue on, and before we run out of time in our shoot around, uh, a couple more topics. But to continue on coaching changes, let's jump to the, the professionals here. There are a lot of big name NBA coaches uh, that are on the move, and I think we've mentioned this at one time. But now we've had some names uh, associated with some teams. We've had some hires, and. Uh, we are uh, getting into sort of the, the nitty-gritty of when you need to be hiring some people. And so the really interesting name that was uh, brought up this week was Nick Nurse being hired by the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, do you have any quick thoughts on that to start with Nick Nurse headed to Philly? <laughs> well, I like this kind of stuff because you and I get to have a whole lot of like interesting conversations where we make predictions and stuff with each other on this one. 
but starting to right. finally see some of these guys land in certain places uh, does make the conversation a little bit more fun because then we get to actually kind of dive into how we think a particular coach can work in a particular team with, with certain players. And I hated to see Nick Nurse leave Toronto, and I know you and I talked about that you know, kind of on our own too uh, behind the scenes as far as some of these coaches that have gotten fired and the precedent that it sets across the league for other guys um, that kind of go through similar situations where you've got to think, you know, does, does this person really warrant losing their job and being let go based on one year or two years when they've had incredible success prior? Uh, but I, I like the hire with Nick Nurse. I'm interested to see what Philly does as far as their personnel goes. You know, there's rumors that James Harden wants out. There's rumors that uh, maybe they're going to move in and try and bring in Fred Van Vliet, which would make sense, being that he's a Nick Nurse guy. Um, yep. So, you know, I think Philadelphia definitely, the whole trust the process thing, I think is kind of worn out its welcome at this point. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's time to no longer trust the process, and it's time to get something done. And, you know, Joel Embiid obviously is, a, is an MVP, and whatever they can do to build around him, I think he's a piece that Nick Nurse can definitely – uh, definitely work with, and I think he's a good fit for Philly. I think so, too. I think the thing that Philadelphia lacked was was adjustments. In the regular season, they had a pretty great system um, with Harden and Embiid um, just running that pick and roll. Harden was leading the league in assists, Embiid leading the league in scoring, looking a lot like you know kind of a Stockton and Malone-ish offense where it was like, hey, we know what we're running, but we can't stop. I mean, Harden was just dropping the ball to him, immediately leading the league and scoring for the second straight year. And Doc Rivers' teams, who was formerly the Philadelphia 76ers coach, uh, Doc Rivers' teams are usually a top-five offensive uh, team. Like, wherever he's been, he's usually top-five in offense. Boston was really good when he was with the Clippers. Obviously, they had a really fun team. Um, so he always comes up with a very good regular season offensive system. He's known for doing that. Um, his issue is that he's not really a great playoff adjustment guy, just based on his history. Nick Nurse at times to me is kind of gimmicky. Like when they played, you know, the Warriors in the finals, and they won, um, you know, when they were running box and one and, and stuff like that and triangle and two, which is not something you see in the NBA very much. But Philadelphia needs adjustments. Um, they definitely need um, some personnel things, like you've said. They definitely need some depth. They may be making some moves. I'm not sure. Fred Van Vliet would be a very interesting player. Um, his name's already connected with, with Philadelphia and maybe following uh, Coach Nurse. But I would be very interested to see um, what he does there, and I definitely think that they're going to look very different. Uh, I definitely think that if they're bringing in new people, it's going to be a much different-looking team. Um, I'm very excited to see that team have adjustments and have different different schemes to where Joel is not maybe carrying such a heavy load because we know what he can do, but in the playoffs we've just not seen it. Right, right. I think if you're Philly, you have to make adjustments just based on what happened in the playoffs. You know, I – you can be comfortable with certain results, but I don't think if you're Philadelphia at this point, especially with Joel Embiid kind of at his peak as far as being in his prime, uh, you've got to be in a win-now mentality. And I think you've got to be willing to do whatever it takes, especially bringing Nick Nurse in, a guy who's established as a head coach in the league, who's won a title with Toronto. Uh, it's kind of an all-or-nothing, I think, summer for Philly. For sure. They've got to make the move there. Uh, I'd be interested to see what they do. 
Some of the other rumors, well, not a rumor, this one. Uh, Ime Adoka, formerly of the Boston Celtics, um, for reasons we're not going to get into, but uh, <laughs> Ime Adoka now in with the Houston Rockets. Houston has a great young core. Adoka seems to be a pretty big motivator. That was kind of his thing in, or, I'm sorry, in Boston, uh, was that he really motivated that team, and he was kind of an old-school style, style of leader. He really... Um, you know, got into the guy's grill and, and got him, you know, playing with some toughness. Uh, I mean, I'm excited to see him do that with a young team. Uh, apparently, a lot, uh, several of Boston's assistants are headed to Houston with him uh, to, you know, I guess they enjoyed working for him there in Boston. They had a lot of success. I'm excited to see Ime Adoka there. Um, some other coaches that are still out there but will be on the move. Monty Williams' name today was tied with the Detroit Pistons. I'm excited to see that. Detroit's got a great young core. What are your thoughts on Monty in Detroit? He was one of the guys that when the news came through that he was getting fired, I immediately fired off text to you. I'm like, what are, what are we doing here? Um, yeah. You know, if you're, if you're Phoenix, I get that Phoenix is set up in a similar situation to Philly where it's an all-or-nothing kind of circumstance with their organization. But, I mean, my goodness, you didn't – you didn't give the guy a, a full season with that roster. You know, Durant was not healthy for part of his stint there with Phoenix until the playoffs really came around. You know, Booker is perennial all-star, one of the best players in the league. Uh, but you've got to give those two guys time. You've got to give a head coach time. You know, Chris Paul, who I don't think will be in Phoenix next year uh, based on the fact that they looked night and day different when he was not on the floor during the playoffs, I thought the ball moved better. They were faster. They played with more pace. Uh, I thought they were more versatile defensively without him in the lineup. Uh, so I would not imagine that he will be there in Phoenix. But I thought uh, I thought Monty Williams got the hook way too early on this one. It was re- I, I really like Monty Williams and was hoping to get to see him have an entire season with Booker and Durant and see what he could do with those guys. I agree with you. I thought it was really interesting that they got rid of him so quickly. They have a new owner, and he's got kind of that new owner syndrome. He wants to he wants to leave his mark. He wants everyone to know that, you know, he's really invested in this team winning. And so new owners you always see make a move like that. I just think that was the wrong move. Monty Williams helped build this team up. Um, they traded away half their team. Um <laughs> And then they bring in Kevin Durant. You don't really get to see them. And to be honest, they played pretty tough to the team that might end up winning the NBA Finals. Yeah. Um, I, I don't I don't get that one at all. Um, those are some pretty interesting coaching moves. Before we run out of time here on our shoot-around, I'm curious to know, uh, we're going to jump away from coaching, but head back to the state of Indiana here. There is a new rule in the state of Indiana that there will be an adjustment to uh, the bonus in the foul situation in high school games. We mentioned this with Coach Shannon a couple weeks ago. Um, rather than seven fouls gets you in the bonus and a half, it's five fouls per quarter, and you will go into the bonus, and it resets each quarter. Um, I guess I'm kind of thinking about this, and, and we've had some discussions. I guess my initial question is, how is this going to affect the strategy of basketball games, especially in late-game situations? So I'm going to toss that one to you really quickly. How is this rule, I know we're jumping here before we run out of time here at our warm-up, but how is this rule going to affect the game? What do you see out of it? I'm not as as concerned with how it affects the game in the first half. 
what I'm interested to see is how it affects the game in the second half when a game is tight or a team makes a run to get back in the game late. And now you're in a situation where, you know, previously if you had, you know, four fouls racked up in the third quarter, if you're making a comeback, it's late in the game, and you need to get guys to the free throw line so you can extend the game and get more possessions, all you got to do is foul three times. But now I'm interested to see how coaches will change their strategy late in the game. Um, if it's a situation where you've only committed one or two team fouls, when do you start fouling? Um, who do you foul? The fact that it's an automatic two free throws, I think, really changes things because then you have to be incredibly mindful of not only when you foul, but who you foul. Right. Right? Uh, so the defensive strategy that comes into it, uh, I don't hate the rule at all. It's kind of like Coach Shannon said, you know, the NBA trickles down to college, college trickles down to high school, and you've got to live with it. There's no sense in arguing it. Uh, right. I like it personally and wish it would have been around when when I was coaching. Uh, just I think it's a little bit more seamless you know, you talk about each quarter being able, you know, to look at where you're at per quarter and not getting lost in, oh, well, it's two minutes two minutes into the fourth quarter and now we're in the bonus. You know, you know you've got five fouls to give every quarter. I like it personally. Uh, I like going to the line automatically and shooting two because it's going to give teams a whole lot more to think about, especially in late-game situations. I, I agree. I think it's definitely going to affect late game situations more. My thought is, how can you approach this in fourth quarter situations? I definitely think if you reset and you've got five fouls, it's definitely going to help a team stop the clock while not increasing that lead early on in that fourth quarter. Uh, I can definitely see that. If it resets and it's tight and you have three or four fouls to give, yeah. I, I think that looks really good. My other thought is, how can this be used in a quarter-by-quarter quarter, like strategy to your advantage? Is this going to give you an ability to maybe put a little more pressure on? Um, you can, you've got some more fouls to give to where you're not getting into that bonus so early. You can really come out and be aggressive in that first quarter, get a few fouls if you're pressuring. You know, I mean, not trying to get fouls, but in the aggression of your defense, you know, get some fouls there because second quarter is going to reset. I definitely think that could be an advantage to teams who play that style. Um, if it's going to give you an automatic two free throws, I'm curious how quickly can you draw fouls each quarter? Like, can you try? I mean, is there, is there a way you could run your offense, get guys into the bucket to where you're getting fouls more often to where, hey, it's halfway through the first quarter and we're already in the bonus. Right. And I'm getting up two free throws every foul now. So I feel like there's ways you can – adjust it quarter by quarter to your advantage like you can strategize for that but I also think it's going to be really beneficial for teams who are behind in a tight game in the fourth quarter so if you can stop the clock and you've got several fouls to give I think it puts you in a pretty good position yeah I think I'm with you defensively it certainly does change things with a reset every quarter um, I think it it sets itself up to favor teams that play more aggressive defense but more so, I think it favors teams that are deeper. So yeah. if, you're, if you're a team at the 1A, 2A level, or in some cases 3A level, where you play six or seven guys, now I think your defensive strategy changes throughout the course of, throughout the course of a game based on fouls committed. 
Um, but I also think offensively you're going to look at this being a huge favor for teams that put a lot of pressure on the defense by trying to make things work in the paint off the dribble drive, dribble handoffs, high pick and rolls. You know, teams that are able to space the floor, get in the paint, or teams that have a dominant big man, um, I think you're going to see them not necessarily thrive on offense, but I think you're going to see those teams probably uh, put up bigger numbers than maybe what they have in the past, too. I completely agree with that. Uh, that wraps up our shoot-around. We're warmed up, and we're going to head into fourth quarters. When we come back, we've got some great NBA playoff discussions coming. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. Uh, that was a great shoot-around. Um, I really enjoyed those discussions. I'm, I'm excited to see coaching changes at the high school level and the NBA level. Um, I'm always excited to see new systems and things to be put in place. I know you are, too. Um, right now, we're going to get into our four-quarter segment. And we're really going to deep dive into the NBA playoffs, which has been a really, really exciting NBA playoffs. Um, a lot of new faces headed into the finals um, and some really, really interesting conference finals. And we're going to start off with our first quarter, putting eight minutes on the clock here. And we're going to talk Western Conference finals. Um, that ended in a sweep by the Denver Nuggets. They are headed to their first NBA finals ever. Uh, as I start the clock here, Derek, what are your thoughts on the Western Conference finals from this year? Well, Cam, I mean, in all fairness, like you and I talk, we're basically basketball geniuses because we both predicted the Denver Nuggets to get there. Um, I don't and... know why we're not on ESPN already <laughs> after episode like seven of this. We can both act like we picked Miami, but that would be the fur- furthest thing from the truth. But both of us were, were very high on Denver from the start. Um, we both had them picked to make it out of the Western Conference, and they did. And looking at this series, it as far as Denver winning – Things played out like we both thought. I thought it was going to be a five- or six-game series. I wasn't sure it was going to go seven. Um, but just given the star power on L.A. with LeBron, Anthony Davis, uh, the role players that they were able to bring back in, D'Angelo Russell, uh, Vanderbilt, um, the way that those young guys have been playing since they got traded to, to L.A., I thought for sure, at least at home, you know, the Lakers would kind of – hold their own a little bit and at least get a game or two against Denver. Uh, But if anything, I think Denver just kind of showed the juggernaut and the hidden juggernaut I would like to add that they've been this year because as far as their time on national television, uh, whether it be games on national television or the conversations nationally on some of these TV shows that you and I watch and pay attention to, Denver kind of just quietly has dominated under the radar. Yep. Uh, and, you know, I don't think you ever walk to the NBA Finals, but they certainly dominated their way to the NBA Finals and uh, could not be more impressed. You know, looking at stats, Jokic averages a triple-double for the series. Uh, he is the leader in rebounds for the series at 14 and a half. He's the leader in assists for the series at 11.5. He goes for almost 1.5 blocks a game. And the unsung hero, Jamal Murray, averages 32.5 points a game in the series uh, for Denver. And to me, that was the difference in the game, particularly late in fourth-quarter situations because there were a few of those games that were tight going down the stretch late. And to me, the difference was the fact that Number one, Anthony Davis played every other night. 
Um, he would have one night where he'd go for 30 and 15 and come back and have 13 and 8. Um, so the inconsistency with him, to me, was a huge part as to why the Lakers didn't get a win in the series. But more so, like I said, I think it goes to Denver's Denver's players and their ability late to have a guy they could go to who could go get his own shot. I, I agree. Uh, this was – I was going to bring this up later, but I'm going to do it now. I don't get on my high horse about many things <laughs> but about Nikola Jokic. I've, I've been driving that bus for quite some time. I think when I met you – I was talking about how big of a fan I was of Joker. Uh, I just, I just like him. I think that he has, he has claimed the best player in the league crown after that series. I just think that he, with everything he did, not just statistically, but the way he controls the game, it's unbelievable. If there are times where it looks like he's tired, then he just facilitates and puts things in the, in, in the right spot and then sets everyone up. He's unbelievable to watch. Uh, the Lakers were outmanned, but I don't think they were outmatched. And I was going to say at one point they were outmatched, but I don't think that's the truth. They competed. Darvin Ham looked like a good coach in this series. They made adjustments. They did different things. I think they just didn't quite have the firepower. You used the word juggernaut. I think that's the truth. Um, they they just don't quite have the you know the manpower to beat them. Uh, they had a lot of good players, but didn't quite work. Um, I loved watching this Denver team throughout the entire playoffs. Whenever it looked like they were about to maybe get sunk by the Lakers, Murray would have an explosive quarter. Yep. Jokic would take a fadeaway on one leg and shoot it from behind his head and with a defender right in his face, and it hit nothing but the bottom of the net. He did that three times in the series. The shot clock's running down, and he just takes this wild fadeaway. They just... So, Phil Jackson says this when he evaluates whether or not a team can win a title. And he says, in the regular season, you can tell if a team wins 40 games before they lose 20 games, they're a contender. He says that that is the model. And Phil Jackson, I think, is a guy who can attest to that since he's won, I think, 11 championships. He knows he knows a little bit about getting there. Um, and so I watched for that. And the Nuggets were that team. The Nuggets won 40 games before they lost 20 games. And so I thought, okay, well, this shows that they're a contender. And not only that, when you watch them in these playoffs, they just look like a team that's going to go win a title. Even if they lost. Even when they lost to Phoenix, it was a tight game. One of the games they lost, Jokic had 53, and they almost won. When the Lakers would get on a run, the Nuggets would just go on this crazy spurt and just put them away. Uh, you texted me at one point on one of those Jokic fadeaways. Jokic called game. Like, I think he just... They just know when to put it away. They just look like a team that's going to win a title because of that. I, I've i enjoyed watching them more than I've enjoyed watching a lot of teams the past couple of years. Um, they're not you know, what the Warriors were a couple of years ago, but they look like the team that's head and shoulders better than everybody that's like that Warriors team did. I don't think they're better than that team by any means. But watching them play, it just looks like they're going to win. Yeah, I completely agree. And it, it, Even going back to the Phoenix series, you know, when it felt like there was an opportunity for Denver to leave the door open and you kind of felt like, okay, this is a chance for Phoenix or the Lakers to kind of kick it open and kind of let themselves be known in the series, 
it just never really happened because, like you said, you'd have Jokic hit a step back three from 26 feet off of one leg ball behind his head, and it goes in. Uh, and even after the first game or two between Denver and L.A., you know, there was, I think, one point, and it may have been game one, uh, Denver had eight points that either came off of a shot at the end of a quarter or at the end of the shot clock with the buzzer going off. And so it was basically they were looking at, well, Denver wins, but they had six or eight kind of slot points, right? Right. Well, they end up winning the first game by six or eight points, and they're thinking, okay, well, if those don't go in, Los Angeles plays them even. So that's the situation I'm talking about when it's the door is still cracked open. All L.A.'s got to do is play a little bit better to kick it through. Uh, but Denver answered the, the bell every single time and just never gave them a chance. No different than, than in a UFC fight. You know, when you're talking about two guys going into the fifth round and you're just waiting for the, you know, for the, the favorite to kind of slip up and do something wrong, they never do. Right. Uh, you know, they take you to the ground or they knock you out or they tap you out, and that's basically what Denver did with L.A., they just never gave them a chance to really get their, their feet underneath of them. I agree. And it just made less mistakes. Yeah. All right, we kind of let the, let the clock run out there, but that's the end of the first quarter. Um, very exciting Western Conference Finals. I'm very excited to see where uh, this team, what they can do uh, come NBA Finals here uh, tomorrow. Uh, Heading into the second quarter. Let's look at the Eastern Conference Finals um, and talk about this Miami and Boston matchup. I'm going to kick it over to you. We're going to talk a little bit about – we're going to spend quite a bit of time on this um, over the next two quarters here. But in quarter two, let's just talk about the series as a whole. What are your initial thoughts looking at this very interesting Boston-Miami series in the Eastern Conference Finals? Man, you talk about a tale of two different series within a series. Like – you thought we were going to see two sweeps moving right along and just roll right into the NBA Finals and get an early head start on them, uh, you know, where both teams were going to get a, a week or so off, and it's just now it's Denver, you know, that enjoys a little bit of a longer vacation with more prep time. So you've got to think at least game one, the favor goes to Denver with all their rest time. But, man, completely – Completely different look within the same series here as Miami comes out and takes the first three um, and is dominant in all three. Really left absolutely no doubt as to who the better team was and was just basically putting Boston in a blender um, every other night for the first three games. And then you see Boston flip a switch. Uh, Joe Mazzula figured some things out. And you had Tatum and Brown kind of get on the same page. They start to play better. Shots start to fall. Uh, I thought Miami kind of rushed, particularly in game four and game five. Looked a little bit pressed. Um, Jimmy Butler didn't necessarily play as well as he had the first three games. Um, Looked like he kind of settled. In one instance, I thought he looked like he was a little bit hesitant, maybe, um, to take some shots that he normally would have just caught in rhythm and went up with, particularly shots in the paint and around the rim. Uh, but this was a fun series to watch. Uh, we went from, you know, Boston with its back against the wall, 
to suddenly in game seven, all of the pressure being on, being on Miami's shoulders. And it was just really fun, great back and forth between those two teams. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because, you you know, game seven, everyone says, you know, it's the most exciting words in sports uh, or the most exciting two words in sports. But you rarely see it like this. Like, it, usually everyone, always, everyone on television always predicts, you know, hey, it's going to seven because it's easy to say that and, and it's hard to take a stand on teams in the playoffs. But you rarely see three wins in a row and then three wins in a row. To put right. Games. It's just, it was just very wild to me. Um, Miami definitely has been picking teams apart, and the four games that they won in this series, Miami picked Boston apart. They, it's like they knew everything that was going to happen before they did it. Um, they jumped on them defensively. Their zone smothered Boston, especially through those first three games. Um, I'm not sure um, how in the world it flipped like this, but I will say that the narrative was that Joe Missoula was outmatched and Joe Mazzulla didn't know what he was doing. And I'll say that I, I think that um, the NBA media, I think they all owe an apology to Joe Mazzulla. To be able to flip it and win three games in a row, and I know this series ended the way it did in Game 7 at home. Joe Mazzulla came into this team uh, with a very odd situation leading into it. He takes this team over, and he does lead them to an Eastern Conference Finals and takes them to Game 7 when he was down 3-0. That doesn't happen very much, and I think that he definitely, you know, there are definitely some holes in what Boston does, but I don't think he was so horrible that it, I mean, if they would have got swept, it's a different narrative, but I definitely think they will an apology. Um, but this is one of the more interesting series. Um, Boston did make a really exciting effort to come back. Um, it was very exciting to see them do that, but I think Miami is just too smart, and they really picked him apart there. Uh, defensively, throughout the entire series, one of the really interesting things I saw was the way that Miami attacked Brown and Tatum. Um, there were some real ball handling issues with, with Brown and Tatum. I, I read online that people compared Miami's defense at times to uh, the way a defensive line will recover fumbles. They would kind of just dive at Boston's knees, and the ball would kind of get fumbled around, and they would just pick it up, and it was off to the races for a layup. Uh, Miami always finds a way to counter. Um, we've talked about this. A lot of these good teams can make adjustments game to game, but these great teams make adjustments in game, and Spolstra's that guy. Uh, Spolstra and the Miami Heat, they adjust in games, not only defensively. It seems like every game in this series when Miami would win, it was a new guy coming out to be the hero. Yeah. Game 7, it's Caleb Martin. You've got Gabe Vincent being a hero. Struess is a hero. Obviously, Butler has his games. Um, we literally see every game, someone gets pulled out of the woodwork, and you're like, the uh, what you would call casual NBA casual fans who may not have known someone like this, like a Gabe Vincent or a Caleb Martin. You see this guy, you hear about Jimmy Butler, but then you see his incredible supporting cast. It's just awesome to me to see Miami, who was an eight seed last season was was number one seed, and they got knocked off in the playoffs. But for them being eight seed, pick teams apart, and then have an unsung hero every single game yeah. come in like this. Uh, it's just exciting, and I think it's just really good basketball. I'm excited to see them in the finals, and I'm excited to see a team that plays this style of basketball, um, very team-oriented, uh, head to a championship. Yeah, and I, the part that I really enjoy is the number of undrafted players 
that Miami is doing this with that play significant roles on their team, uh, which to me just speaks volumes to their organization, to guys like Pat Riley who are able to recognize talent in some of these guys and not necessarily draft them, obviously, but go and pick these guys up. And then they turn into, you know, guys that go out and win you a conference championship and get you to the NBA Finals, and I think that's awesome. Um, Spolstra, to, to talk about him for a second, I thought he kind of exposed Boston's inability to consistently knock down jump shots, you know, with that zone. And it was clear that there were certain guys on Boston that they were content really to not guard or contest. Uh, to me, it was interesting that to counter Miami's zone, Boston put Al Horford in the middle of it. Horford, number one, is not a guy who can play in traffic. Um, he's not necessarily the most consistent shooter in the world. And so by putting him in the middle of a zone where he's catching the ball at 14 to 18 feet, you know, you want to first catch square up and look if you've got a jump shot. Well, if you take the person catching the ball, their inability to hit a jump shot, now the first thing I'm doing is I'm catching and I'm looking low. Well, because they don't have to guard me, low's covered. So my only look is to catch and look opposite, but because the defense is not accounting for Al Horford in the middle of the zone because he's not a quote-unquote threat and they can leave another shooter open, the corner's covered now too. Um, so I thought that in Game 7 is where Miami's adjustment was the big difference and then Boston's inability to adjust to that zone, to me, it was the difference in the game. Yeah, and as our um, as our buzzers are about to go off here, you and I discussed um, spending an extra quarter on this, and especially a game seven. So we're going to roll right into our third quarter here, continuing on this series. We don't need a halftime. Let's go. Yeah, we don't need. I don't think we need a halftime. We're rolling right into it. No adjustments on the picket fence podcast. No, no, no. We're sticking with the game plan. We're playing Boston Celtics basketball. <laughs> we're sticking to the game plan. We're not making any halftime adjustments. Um, yeah, I think um, if you're okay with it, I'm okay jumping right here. Let's do it. This. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to kind of piggyback on what you said here. That zone caused so much problems for Boston. Yeah. To the point that I think I read through maybe the first three or four games, Boston didn't hit a three against it. They just had no answer very early on. Um, and when they went man-to-man, it's looking at this Celtics team, they're very one-dimensional on offense. Um, they have... You know, kind of what I would use the analogy of, like, Mike Tyson style. Mike Tyson comes out, and he's looking for a knockout early, right? His his famous phrase is, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That's kind of how Boston played. And if you watch some of the regular season, there are a lot of games where they're hitting seven, eight, nine, ten threes yeah. in the first quarter. And then you just can't come back. Miami clearly recognized that and smothered the three-point line. They ran a zone that just completely kept them from getting easy looks. Boston oftentimes looks to just isolate. They look for a mismatch, and they will default to a lot of step-back three-pointers. Um, in some of the games I watched where they were really starting to come back and, and, and they won those games, Boston went to some sets. They executed the sets well. Um, they found the mismatch out of these actions more. And I, I just found it odd that they didn't keep rolling with that, especially against the zone. I mean, I think... Again, you have to credit what Miami did defensively, credit Eric Spolstra, credit the game plans they had. But when you've seen it for six games, 
Now, as we look at Game 7, that was an absolute blowout. I feel like there's got to be a point where you have a, a different look, and I'm not quite sure. And again, look, we're not NBA coaches here. I understand that this is a lot easier said than done. <laughs> but at a point, I, I would think that maybe there was something that would be drastically different, and I maybe, maybe I'm just not seeing it. I saw them definitely go to more set plays as the series went on. But against the zone, I would have liked to see maybe something different. And they had some actions that, that did attack it and they got to the rim on it. They would hit the middle and hit somebody on the baseline um, and get some nice looks at the rim, but they really had no answer for them taking away the three-point line, and that was what Miami lived with, and that ultimately got them a chance to go to the NBA Finals. Yeah, Boston very much so thrives on that three-point shot. They thrive on the three-point line, which to me is interesting because other than Tatum, they don't really have a consistent – three-point shooter. I mean, we can talk about Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart, but as far as just being catch-and-shoot, knockdown shooters, I think that's kind of one of the years where Boston lacks, and it's probably something that they're going to have to address in the offseason if they want to get back to a point where they're, in, where they're in the NBA Finals again. And, you know, we're having a conversation about them being a legitimate contender and, you know, one of the four or five teams you're thinking could, can go win it. Um, I think they've got to adjust something and find themselves a knockdown shooter because if you if you flip and you put Duncan Robinson on Boston, um, I think maybe it's a, it's a different conversation. But uh, kudos to Miami and their ability to uh, be willing to change up their defense. You know, again, I think Boston relies heavily on the three. They did not fall. But then I think Boston also relies pretty heavily as kind of a fallback offensive strategy to just throw the ball to Tatum or Brown and let them just try and go get a bucket on their own. Right. And as a defense, when you can stack your defense, you know, to account for that type of offense, it makes it a whole lot easier to defend. Yeah, it does. And, you know, you're talking about their shooters. They have very streaky shooters. There are times when I watch Jalen Brown and he'll rattle off three, four, five in a row. I mean, there are times in regular season, the time in the playoffs, he's been that way where it's not like, man, Jalen Brown – is going to get paid this offseason, you know, going into his free agency. Yeah. You know, hey, I watch games where I'm like, man, this guy's one of the best, you know, two or three shooting guards in the league. Um, and, he, and he may be that. Um, but they just don't quite have the consistency. And to be honest, the guy that was the most inconsistent was Jason Tatum. When he had 53 against, was it 53 against Philadelphia? Yeah, when he just went nuts. Yeah, he has a 50-point game. I kind of thought that maybe, it, all right, Boston, Boston's in it. And, you know, you hate to, you know, I'm not downing Jason Tatum because he's a tremendous player and he's, you know, he was first team All-NBA. But Jason Tatum, to me, the biggest issue was there were some times where he was kind of alternating ball games. Yeah. He had some great games in Philly. He had some really quiet games in Philly. He had some great games against Miami, and then he got pretty quiet. And now if you look at game seven, I know he rolled his ankle. And apparently that injury really, really bothered him. But if you're out there to me, if it's that bad, we got to know about that end game because I understand that that is a difficult injury to deal with and it's hard to play when you've got ankle stuff. But if you're out there, man, I've either got to see that, hey, it's visible that you can't function or, you know, hey, he's, he's good to go. Because I don't think that a blowout loss by that margin has – much to do with the fact that you roll your ankle and you're still out there. I, I get it that it hurts, but when you absolutely get blown out on a home court like that, yeah. 
I just think that's that's pretty difficult. Yeah, and I just I just look at the difference in the shot making ability between both of those teams, and Miami obviously showed that they were a little bit better than Boston in that regard. You think about Jimmy Butler, Duncan Robinson, Struess, Gabe Vincent. I mean, the list continues there with Miami and the guys that they have that can just shoot the ball from the three-point line. And they were able to, to counterbalance the fact that Boston likes to play a lot of iso ball with their two best players. And there was more ball movement, more structure with Miami. And they just simply outshot Boston. And in a lot of cases, outdefended Boston. Yeah. I think that's the difference between Boston this year and last year. Uh, they have virtually, except for Malcolm Brogdon, the same team. Um, Derek White, who was huge in this series, I think was kind of their X factor. He was pretty consistent on offense. He looked like their best defender. He had, even though they lost the play of the series, which we haven't mentioned yet, the tip-in to end game six is probably the best play in the playoffs I've seen in a couple of years. Yeah, that's an all-time great playoff finish. Yeah, I mean, that is seriously an all-time. Like, they have those... Um, you know, hardwood classics that they'll show on NBA TV yeah. and they have like a montage of the greatest game winners and things. That's up there. I don't know if it's as good as, you know, Bird steals the ball and flips it to, you know, DJ for the layup, but I bet it's second in terms of Boston Celtics playoff plays. That was that was pretty incredible. Um, I cringed when Marcus Smart took that turnaround. Yeah. Uh, I mean, clearly Miami just took the ball out of Tatum's hand and they just wanted anybody else. But Marcus... Marcus was going to be the hero there. Um, but it was just an amazing series for that. It reminded me a little bit of not quite as back and forth and competitive. The Bulls-Celtics series in 2009, if you remember that, when so many yeah. of those games went into overtime, it went to seven games. That's probably the best playoff series I've ever, I've ever watched. But in terms of the most interesting, in terms of the most interesting, I think that that's up there. Um in terms of uh, the series, and it's definitely the best series of the playoffs so far. Yeah, and I mean, even though it was basically two different series within within one seven-game period, the better team did come out on top. They did, for sure. Um, it's very exciting, and I'm, I'm curious to see what Miami can do. Um, as our buzzer goes off here, uh, I'm curious to see what Miami can do here in the finals, and that's leading us into our fourth quarter. In our fourth quarter here, we're going to discuss the – NBA Finals, we're going to kind of give our Finals preview here. If you want to kick us off, do you have any predictions and then maybe some keys to how uh, either the Denver Nuggets or the Miami Heat will win the NBA championship? Uh, why don't you give us uh, your your take on this? I'm going to go Denver in six. Um, I think Miami for sure gets one at home, possibly two. Maybe they steal one in Denver. Uh just given the fact that typically out of the gate, Miami performs really, really, really well um, in series here so far this playoffs. But uh, your guy that you've been harping on for about three and a half years now uh, might be the best player in the world. And I think he's the difference. I know we've not really talked much about Bam Adebayo here because Miami's got so many other guys that put the ball in the hole. And it's almost like they trade off on a game-by-game basis of who's going to lead them in scoring. But Denver may not quite have that versatility in their lineup. But to me, the consistency of Jokic, Murray, and Michael Porter Jr. 
um, just to me puts Denver kind of in a different stratosphere. And you throw in guys like Aaron Gordon, um, Contavious Caldwell-Pope. I mean, they've got guys across the board too. So I think they match up really well with Miami in the shot-making category. And, again, if Miami wants to run that zone like they ran against Boston, that's a completely different look because if I'm Denver, you've got three or four different guys you can put in the high post of that zone that have to be accounted for, unlike Boston. Yeah, I I agree with that. And so uh, I'm going to agree with you uh, on the, the winner here. I have the Nuggets as the 2023 NBA uh, Finals champion. Uh, I think that the, the Denver Nuggets win in five games. Okay. Um, I don't know if they can get one in Denver. I don't know if they can. Uh, I, d- I definitely think it'll be hard to win in Miami, but I, with the way that Denver adjusts offensively and the way that they looked against L.A. when L.A. went on their runs, I think I think it's going to be very difficult for Miami to beat them. But I don't want to count out Miami because they've been so good. But I've yeah. got Jokic as the MVP of this in a five-game series. Yeah. Um, and when I look at the keys of this, I, you know, I'm thinking the same thing as you. How does Denver deal with the zone? And I'm also going to say I don't think the zone is going to look the same because they clearly executed that zone specifically to deal with Boston. They took away that three-point line. It was very, very extended. They had four guys up. Adebayo was under the bucket. They There was not room to isolate, and there was not room to get off um, those quick threes that they like to take early in the offense. So I think – you know, if they're going to run a zone, I'm. I cannot wait to see what uh, Jokic looks like against a zone. The Miami Heat have not won a game against the Denver Nuggets since the bubble. Um, they had some regular season kind of bubble games there um, with Miami and Denver, and that's the last time Miami has beat them. Uh, Jokic has pretty much picked apart the Miami Heat in the games that they played against them. I am thrilled to see what he does against their zone. So I think the key for Denver is two keys for Denver is how they're going to deal with the zone and then what are their offensive adjustments going to be because you know that Miami's going to have a lot of different defensive schemes. Um, Adebayo doesn't look like he can deal with Jokic one-on-one very well uh, based on their history, but you know that they're going to be trapping and double-team. I'm curious to see how they deal with that if they have a zone specifically catered to the Denver Nuggets, but those are my keys there. Um, And for Miami, can their shooting win them a title? Because Los Angeles didn't quite have the shooting. Right. Phoenix did, and it gave Denver some trouble when they had to pick their poison on the shooters. And I think that's going to be the difference, is the three points. If this gets to an extended series, uh, Miami is going to be winning based on that. When we saw Phoenix really beat up on Denver was when their supporting cast guys were hitting threes. Landry Shamit had his big game. When Durant and Booker had to be doubled and had to draw so much help, Landry Shaman was feasting. If they're going to have to double Jimmy Butler, which gets to my next question, how does Aaron Gordon defend Jimmy Butler? Because he's been the guy on LeBron. He's been the guy on Durant. And he's done really well. But if they're going to have to double Jimmy and they're going to have to deal with that, Miami has more shooting depth than Phoenix. And not to take away from what Phoenix had, but I'm just talking in terms of depth because for some reason Miami just pulls out a guy every yeah. series. And the rumor is that Tyler Hero is coming back. So I think the Achilles heel for Denver here is going to be, 
if they're going to have to double down on Jimmy, if they're going to have to, you know, really help on some of these other shooters, Phoenix found the formula. They just couldn't get it done. Miami has the guns to do that. Yeah, Cam, good points, dude. I don't, I don't disagree with just about anything you said there. Um, interesting that you state that the rumor is Tyler Hero will be back from injury for the NBA Finals. This is going to be my, I guess, hot take for the series. Miami's better without Tyler Hero. I, okay, I agree with you on that, but I'm going to let you roll with it. And I say this because, to me, when you have a team, and I think definitely not to the same degree as Dallas with two guys like Luka and Kyrie on the roster at the same time playing on the, on the floor at the same time, but when you have two guys who are very ball-dominant and that when the ball gets in their hands, it tends to stick a little bit, and you've got four guys that kind of wait to play off of that guy with the ball, to me it kills your offense. And having two guys on the floor like that at the same time, to me can be detrimental. And if we look at, at Denver specifically, you know, the ball doesn't stick with Denver and their offense. But to me, uh, Hero's a guy that when the ball goes to him, he looks to create, looks to get his shot. Jimmy Butler, very much in the same conversation there. When he catches it, he's looking to create and get his shot. But the other guys are kind of stuck waiting and watching. And with Hero out of the lineup throughout the playoffs here, Miami's offense has looked pretty good. And I think, like you said, you know they've found guys either in the starting lineup or off the bench that are more than serviceable. And they're looking at having three or four guys on any given night that can lead them in scoring. So if I'm Miami, I'm not necessarily eager to rush him back and not throw a wrench in the chemistry, but definitely you're, you're going to put some guys who have been used to getting minutes now in a much more diminished role, which may make them less comfortable in the finals. I completely agree with you, and if they're going to use Tyler Hero, I hope they use him in the same way they use Gabe Vincent or Max Struess or Caleb Martin. If he's going to be floating off the ball and just catch and shoot, that's a serious threat. But if he's going to be the primary ball handler, I think it's a problem. I mean, they lost the first game of the play-in series against Atlanta, and they beat Chicago late. Whenever Tyler Hero left, sort of like with the Phoenix Suns and Chris Paul. Whenever those guys left the game, they kind of went on a run. I think the ball sticks with, with CP too much in Phoenix. I think it sticks too much with Tyler Hero. I completely agree with you. I think if he gets brought back, he needs to be used in a different way. And I definitely don't think that he is going to be a, uh, a game changer in that way. Right. Uh, that's our final buzzer here for the uh, – four quarters segment when we come back we're going to have some fun and continue our basketball movie discussion um, we're going to have a draft for our uh the greatest basketball movie characters of all time and draft the starting five there i'm very excited to see where that one goes so uh when we come back we will be drafting welcome back to the final segment here of the picket fins podcast uh, on our last uh full episode we discussed our favorite basketball movies of all time. We had a really fun, in-depth discussion. Um, I really enjoyed that, and so so much so we're going to continue it here. 
we're going to go a little more in depth with this and talk about some of the greatest basketball movie characters ever and actually have a draft here. So uh, Derek and I have both made a list. We're going to draft um, a starting five and then possibly throw in a six-man off the bench here um, just to assemble our best possible fictional basketball characters um, into who we think could kind of compile a, a better team here. Uh, Derek, I think the last time we drafted, I got the first pick. So uh, I'm going to let you have the first pick here. But before we get into it, do you have any draft strategies going into this strictly fictional basketball character draft? Yeah, strictly just how many points did you score in the movie? Um, what did your uniform look like? Were you funny throughout the movie? Did you have any good one-liners? Um, were you a believable basketball player in the movie, or did you just look like Hollywood made you look good? I don't know. Um, what's, <laughs> what are, what are you thinking? Firepower. I definitely went on offensive firepower for sure. Uh, it is hard to watch a sports movie when I'm like, I know that this person has never played this game before. <laughs> uh, it's worse sometimes in baseball movies, but there are some pretty bad basketball ones. Um, so if you had a believable jumper and you put up some serious points, I'm probably yeah. drafting you. Yeah, if, if you actually look like you can play the game and walk and chew gum at the same time, you're at least going to get put down on a potential list. <laughs> yeah, definitely snagging that. So the only rule is it's strictly fictional. I think I'm going to – I think I've got purely fictional players on my team. You got all fictional guys on yours? I think so. I mean, they're all from movies, so I hope that means they're fictional. That should be good. That's our only, <laughs> that's our only criteria. We'll know after we each take our first pick as to whether or not this is going to be yeah. bogus or not, but we'll find out. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to take the, the 96 Bulls from uh, from the last dance, so we'll probably have to, <laughs> to remove any, any real real teams or players. But without further ado... We're going to kick off the draft. The first pick is in. With the first pick of the fictional basketball player draft, Derek Early, you select. Well, he's one of the reasons why Coach Petey Bell had to resign from Western University. He comes in at a staggering 7 feet 4 from New Orleans, Louisiana, and would love to have a fully loaded Lexus in his driveway. His name is Neon Bodeau. That's a great, great first pick. I kind of foresaw maybe him being number one off the board. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal um, is typically a number one draft pick. Uh, that's a that's a great first pick. Uh, Neon's off my board. He's definitely someone I had high up there. Um, so if I'm going to jump here with the second pick, uh, I am taking for my for my favorite basketball movie. I am taking. Um, I'm going offensive firepower here. I'm, I'm selecting Jimmy Chitwood with the second pick. Okay. From Hickory. Um, if we can throw a little stats out there, uh, Jimmy Chitwood in the movie Hoosiers was 20 of 23 from the field. A staggering shooting percentage. Uh, I just couldn't leave that out there. Um, you know, we I've you know I've had my guys scouting since 1986. <laughs> uh, we've rewatched and we just think that. You know, with Neon off the board, he's he's the best selection. Uh, so I'm taking Jimmy Chitwood to, to lead my club. Well, Cinderella story, too, saves the coach's job. Norman Dale about to get canned. 100%. I'm banking on that, too, because I'm sure I'm going to be in the hot seat. So I think uh, Jimmy's going to come in and save the day. 
and an unbelievable shooting percentage throughout that movie. Yeah, 20 of 23, no turnovers, not a single one. Unbelievable. <laughs> All right, what do you got? The number of the third pick. All right, I need to start. I need to probably write the people I picked down here. Um, third pick of the draft, my second overall pick is none other than the most highly recruited high school player ever in movie cinema history. His name is Jesus Shuttlesworth, coming out of New York City. I am I am very disappointed because he was definitely second on my draft board, and he almost made number one there. Jesus, definitely the most highly recruited player we've ever seen on the on the silver screen. Uh, unbelievable potential. Um, I'm sure he's going to hit a crazy shot in the corner of an NBA Finals game to save to to save you against the Spurs. Great pick with Jesus Shuttlesworth there at the second pick. He he 100% merits that, and I'm disappointed because he was on my board and he was up there. <laughs> Where are you going right. next? What do you got here? Fourth overall fourth pick, pick, Cam's second guy. With the fourth pick and my second pick, I am taking Clarence Withers, a.k.a. Oh. Coffee Black. Come on. Sugar Dunkerton, a.k.a. Downtown Funky Stuff Malone. Clarence Withers, played by Andre 3000 in semi-pro, is my second pick. Couldn't turn down the offensive firepower. Just unbelievable. Carried that team to a fourth-place fourth place finish in the ABA. Um, again, my scouts just, I trust him. I know that he's going he's gonna to be a hot shooter from the outside. Uh, can't overlook the fact that he invented the alley-oop. Yes. Uh, I, we're just we have to work that into the offense. Uh, so I couldn't leave Clarence Withers, a man of many names and many talents. Uh, Clarence Withers is my second player uh, on uh, on my uh, draft board. Yeah, he will also take your entire team defensively across the baseline, pump fake you all out of bounds, and then cash out the three from the corner. So when you've got not only that in your arsenal, but you've invented the alley oop, no brainer. At number four, I think, to come off the board. He was on my list, too, so thanks for stealing one of my guys. Appreciate it. He's probably the most offensively versatile player on the board. (laughs) I think that he he is. Certainly has the most jerseys of anyone on our board because he changes his name once a week. (laughs) You've got to thank the Flint Tropics at some point who were trading guys for washing machines. Like, they were running out of funds to keep producing these jerseys. I feel like the names were probably Velcro on the back at some point. They just had to tear it off. We're prepared to supply him with as many jerseys as he needs as long as we can get some of the Chitwood to to, uh, Sugar Dunkerton alley-oop connection there. All right, your third pick. All right, we're going third overall pick, and I'm glad that you have not stolen this one yet. I'm glad this was not one of your first two. So I've got my big. I've got my all-time great shooting guard. Middle is anchored. Got a guy on the wing. I need a point guard, Cameron. So I'm going with the little-known Scott Howard, a.k.a. Teen Wolf. Great pick. Great pick. A.k.a. Teen Wolf. And it will be Teen Wolf suiting up for my roster, not the baby-faced Scott Howard. But there's nothing Teen Wolf could not do on a basketball court. 
And so I need him at my point guard position. That that's an excellent pick. Uh, he's someone that I considered. Um, I worried about the non-Team Wolf minutes. Well, Michael J. Fox in that movie, all-time underrated basketball player in general. But as yep. soon as the Wolf came out, it was all she wrote. The game was over. Uh, people knew what was going to happen when that when that happened. Everything changed. The entire <laughs> flow of the game was different. Um, speaking of Jimmy Chitwood, like stats, I'm not sure Teen Wolf missed a shot in the game. And not only will he help lead your team to victory, he's also going to be on top of the van leading the postgame parade. So... <laughs> You've got not only talent, but an incredible amount of just team spirit and a man that brings the party to you. I, I can't I can't dispute that. I think it's an excellent pick. You've got a tremendous amount of athleticism. Uh, I, I'm actually, so with my next pick here, with my, uh, I think this will be my third player here. Yes. My third pick. I'm going a similar route. Um, in this, uh, I'm looking less for offensive firepower and more for obedience. Okay. My pick, I'm selecting Air Bud. Oh, I like it. Uh, he's a knockdown shooter. Uh, I, you know, there's going to be a lot of a lot of uh, gravity defensively on Jimmy and Clarence Withers. I need that corner shooter, and I think. Uh, Air Bud is going to be that guy that's going to be a reliable knockdown shooter. Um, and above all, he's a really good boy. Well, uh, and, and what a what a potential defensive threat you have there, too, to really, sure. you know, we talk about keeping your nose on the ball. Sure. You talk about a guy that could going to lock somebody down. Look, I, I mean, uh, I'm not worried about him getting a hand check foul. Um, he's got all four on the floor there. I think he's, he's going to be absolutely – Absolutely knows to the ball. Um, he uh, he's going to be my guy. I may have to match him up with Team Wolf there. Yeah, he's definitely going to be definitely going to be glued on the Team Wolf. But I love the I love the potential uh, corner spot up shots I can get out of Air Bud. He's my third <laughs> pick. Oh, so that brings us. Let's see, we're at our fourth pick now. Got to decide what I need to do here. I've got my big. I've got a two. I've got a point guard. I need a stretch four. Okay. I think in this situation, um, I'm going to go with Thomas Shepard, a.k.a. Shep, from the movie Above the Rim, which a lot of those listening at home probably are unfamiliar with the movie Above the Rim, but all-time great mid-'90s basketball movie uh, starring Tupac while he was still alive. Phenomenal movie. Uh, the main character in the movie, whose name is Kyle Lee Watson, his character is loosely based off of Stefan Marbury. Oh, wow. Yeah, when he was there in New York City and kind of grew his own legend in the city, that character is loosely based off of Stefan Marbury. So I'm going to go with Shep at my power forward position. Uh, sneaky, talented very unassuming, quiet, humble, going to do his job, going to play his role. And I think with people like Neon Bedeau, Teen Wolf, obviously attracting the attention, 
Shuttlesworth on his recruiting trips that we know can be um, quite exciting. A, very exciting. Very um, exciting. And eye-opening, some would say. Um, <laughs> yeah, very. I, I need a guy that's just going to come in and just, just put in work, guard the other team's best player. And so I'm going Shep at uh, my four and my fourth overall pick. That's a great selection. Uh, he was on my board. I'm a little disappointed um, that I don't have I don't have Shep uh, as part of my club. Uh, <clears throat> that brings me to my fourth pick. I'm excited. He's still on the board. I think he's underrated, and he's underrated because of the stigma that comes uh, with this character. Um, he's getting selected low because they say white man can't jump, but I'm going to select <laughs> Billy Hoyle. Oh, uh, you have to. I'm taking Billy Hoyle. I think uh, I, I'm strictly going on your ability to put the ball in the basket. I've got four solid scores right now. Great shooters. Uh, Billy, definitely going to be my trash talker out there. Um, you know, you're not going to get much chatter out of Air Bud, um, but, but Billy's going to be bringing that energy. Um, he's definitely a guy I think I can trust as my point guard. Uh, he's going to knock shots down. He's going to facilitate well. Uh, I, I love I love him with my group here, so I'm taking Billy Hoyle. I like Billy Hoyle. He was on my list also. Um, again, knockdown shooter. I like where your head's at. You're going the shooting route with your guys. Uh, yeah. you are, you're sticking true to your point that you made. If you look like you can actually shoot the basketball, you're going to be on Cam's team. And you've got some guys who are actually legitimate athletes in their movie. So do love the Billy Hoyle pick. Remember. I'm definitely going small ball, as I'm noticing here. I'm not sure how I'm going to match up with Neon when we play. Um, I'm not sure how that one's going to work out for me. But we're going to fill it up from the outside, for sure. I am a little undersized at the point guard position, although Teen Wolf, phenomenal athlete, definitely not the largest in stature. Right. So I am a little bit undersized at that position. So that may, I, I, that, do have a, I do have a two-foot-tall shooting guard in there but so we, we that, definitely not, but on his hind legs he's like four foot three that's true so that's true. i don't know how they're measuring <laughs> including tail he might be five feet <laughs> so looking at what i need here i've got neon i've got shuttlesworth i've got teen wolf at my point guard i got shep at the four spot uh I'm gonna go with somebody that's just solid. I don't need I don't need somebody to come in in this position. Probably looking at a small forward spot. I don't need somebody who can who needs to go and get me 20 points. What I need is somebody who can distribute, who can move the basketball, who's not gonna turn it over, gonna be a team player, uh, somebody that you know maybe could really draw attention to my team. Maybe you know help drum up ticket sales merchandise, yeah. come up with some fundraising ideas. I'm going Jackie Moon oh, at number five. Great uh, pick. Again, don't really care at all if he puts the ball in the hole. What I need right now is someone that can lead the organization, that can kind of be a, a hands-on planner for my team. And we know he can be the coach, he can be the GM, he can be the owner. I've got to do hardly any work with this squad. Um, sure. This guy plays power forward for his own team. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, he's not great with officials. No. Um, 
Certainly does love a big check. Not sure if it's going to bounce or not. Um, but big on promotions. So I'm going Jackie Moon at my, my fifth pick here. And I know we talked about Teen Wolf being on top of the van leading the victory parade. But I think he's dancing uh, to a little bit of Jackie Moon. Love me sexy coming down Main Street. For sure. For sure, that's a great that's a great snag. Definitely didn't think about the promoter route. Um, I'm all in on that pick. He's a great one. You are going to have to have a deep bench because he is going to get kicked out. <laughs> all right, for my fifth pick, not final. I think we're going to go with the six man. But um, for my fifth pick, I'm snagging. I'm, I'm leaving the movies and I'm headed to television. Okay. Pick a personal favorite of mine. Uh, I will be selecting Will Smith from the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. He was almost he was on my borderline sixth pick here. So just to kind of give, I don't quite have the stats. I don't know if they're calculable. He probably has the highest usage rate in the history of basketball. Uh, <laughs> stepped onto a horrible Bel Air Academy basketball team, um, and basically single-handedly led them to every win that they had. Um, all the ball handling. <laughs> All the shooting, all the defense. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping he can be a good team player with the rest of my team. There's a lot of offensive firepower. Will definitely needs the ball in his hands. Um, he was a big time triple double guy in the uh, in the early '90s LA private school circuit. Uh, but I, I'm excited to have Will on the team. I think he's going to really fill it up. I'm excited with all the firepower I've got. Um, but he is. Really, really going to be a good addition and very underrated in terms of fictional basketball characters. Yeah, I'm um, highly concerned about the size of gyms in the L.A. private school sector as well as the type of backboards that they use. But I don't think it necessarily impacted his ability to play because everything he shot hit the bottom of the net. So, um, Yeah, they they, they definitely had – they definitely weren't putting their funds into the athletic programs for sure. Had some very very weak basketball goals. I'm actually, um, we're having some people fact check it. They appear to be about nine feet. Uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll, uh, we're hoping that Will will we'll fit in with the group there and, and make the adjustment to a possibly higher um, budget and higher um, height basketball goal. Yeah, looking at the jerseys, the facilities, guessing there's a lot of travel abroad programs at Bel Air Prep. I, I mean, that's just speculation at best. I have no real set proof to that. But Will Smith was so good that out of pure jealousy, his cousin stole the ball from him at half court and launched a one-arm hook shot to try and win a game. So, Yeah, definitely not drafting Carlton in this for sure. Uh, we're going to have to keep Will from kissing cheerleaders mid-game before he takes his jump shot. Yeah. But if, if we have a big enough lead, I'll probably allow it. Yeah, there, you have, there are certain contingencies you have to, you know, you got to give to certain players. No different than, you know, Jackie Moon. Um, you know, there's probably going to be some things at halftime that I allowed you, Jesus Shuttlesworth to do. Uh, Got to keep the players happy. It's about managing. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we're going to be a, a players program. So that's yours. Will Smith is now off the board. I think it's time to grab a six-man. Okay. Six-man for me, and I'm thrilled that he's not been chosen yet. Um, but I'm going to go back up point guard slash two guard. He can play either spot. I want Butch McRae 
from Chicago that became the point guard for Western University and is also one of the reasons why Coach Petey Bell had to resign. Yes. Yeah, we're hoping – this is a we're, – we're making this a fictional um, professional league here. Um, definitely, definitely in trouble if we're in college with your group. Well, the beauty is now with the NIL money cam, we can get Butch's mom whatever job she would like. True. The yard can be as big as she would like. I mean – to think about what Neon did against Indiana just for Alexis. Wow. Right? I mean, I'm thinking if we put a Range Rover, you know, maybe a Ferrari in the driveway, he might go give me 40 and 25. I don't know. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of potential, but a lot of uh, put uh, you know kind of a give back you gotta give to your players there. They're expecting quite a lot with Jackie and the two uh, blue chips guys. They're definitely expecting a lot in return, but there's a big turnout. In they are. I'm thinking the fundraising ability of Jackie Moon alone probably brings in an alarming amount of NIL money for this squad. We know that between Neon, Butch, and Shuttlesworth, it's going to be needed. Um, but, you know, somebody's got to pay for, for Teen Wolf, and I'm sure the copious amounts of steak – and ground beef that he's going to need for that diet to keep him in shape. And your corn dog promotions. <laughs> and, you know, lots of corn dogs. There's going to be t-shirt cannons, all sorts of things going on in the gym. It's 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 going to be a performance for you guys for sure. Yeah, we're we're here. We're dabbling not only in sports but in entertainment. We're going to try and do our best to really emphasize both. All right, I'm going to snag my sixth man here. And this one's maybe lesser known by name, but one of the most talented fictional basketball players uh, that I've ever seen. And that is from the movie Coach Carter, and that is Ty Crane. Ooh, Ty Crane was a baller. Ty Crane was a baller. Ty Crane, apparently based off of Tyson Chandler. Okay. Um, But Ty Crane was the opponent that beat Coach Carter's team in the championship game. Uh, unbelievable pull-up game winner. Uh, went on later to play, according to the movie, went on later to play in the NBA and had a great career. Ty Crane, a very smooth lefty. Uh, I'm excited to have Ty come off the bench. He's one of the more impressive high school players um, that we've ever seen in movies before. So Ty's coming off my bench. I'm excited about the offensive firepower I have. Um, we definitely have got a lot of trash talkers. A lot of outside shooting, um, but I'm pretty happy with my squad. Yeah, I think yours is going to be equally as entertaining. You know, you've <laughs> got the uh, the good boy factor with Airbud in there. You've got some potential fireworks with Billy Hoyle. You know, you don't know what sort of trash talk situation he's going to get into. We both kind of kind of have the quiet role player. You've got Chitwood. I've got Shep. Um, We've both kind of got the loud guy with you going coffee black. I've got Jackie Moon. So we certainly have contrasting rosters, but definitely very similar rosters in our own right, you know? Absolutely. Uh, let's roll through those really quick. So read off your five and your uh, your uh, six man, and I'll read off mine. And then we're going to post these to social media. We'd love to hear uh, what starting five you would come up with. 
if there's somebody we left off the board that should have been picked, or if you have, uh, you know, want to pick your favorites of the two teams, we definitely want to hear those on social media. So, Derek, who's your five and your six man? All right, so at point guard, I have Scott Howard, a.k.a. Teen Wolf, played by Michael J. Fox. At my two, I have Jesus Shuttlesworth, played by Ray Allen. At the three, none other than Jackie Moon. Um, at my four, I have Thomas Shepard, a.k.a. Shep, from the movie Above the Rim. The five, holding down at the center spot, is Neon Badeau, played by the one and only Shaquille O'Neal. And then sixth man off the bench is Butch McRae, played by Anthony Penny Hardaway. That's a great squad. Great squad. Going down the line for mine, we're positionless. We're just five We're five out, getting a lot of shots up. Uh, Jimmy Chitwood, Clarence Withers, a.k.a. Coffee Black, a.k.a. Sugar Dunkerton, a.k.a. Downtown Funky Stuff Malone. Just incredible nickname ability. I'm not sure that name fits on a jersey. Uh, I, I think it's going to wrap from hip to hip. I think it goes all the way around. Uh, so we have Jimmy and Clarence Withers, uh, Will Smith from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Air Bud and Billy Hoyle. Uh, off the bench, I've got Ty Crane. I love and Coach it. Coach Carter. I love it. We're going to post these uh, to social media. Um, check us out at PicketFence underscore pod on Twitter. Check us out at the PicketFence podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Uh Tune in, give us a shout-out on social media, let us know your favorites, and as always here at the Pick and Fence Podcast, don't, don't get, get caught, caught watching, watching the paint dry. dry.